Beloved, as the band is coming down, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 this morning, and I want us to read these first two verses. <clears throat> I'm Romans chapter 12 again together, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to consider these, these crucial verses yet again this morning. So let's stand together and let's read this, this text that Paul pens for us. This is the Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, these two verses are so weighty with meaning. And Father, apart from the unction and the direction and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, Father, I, I, I can't preach these words as they need to be preached. Despite the study and preparation, Lord, if you do not accompany the preaching of your word with the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, then, Father, this is just going to be words spoken into the air. So I'm asking you to set a guard upon my lips and upon my mind. That Heavenly Father, you would grant to me the unction of your Holy Spirit, that Father, you would you would give grace to me to speak words that are in accordance with your will, that Lord, the voice of Christ might be heard. And Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray, Lord God, that we would not treat this very familiar text in a weightless manner but that we would give it the gravity that it deserves because it is your word. And I pray, Lord, that every single heart would be attuned to your holy word this morning. I do pray for those, Lord, that are here this morning that are yet enemies of God, who are yet under your wrath, who have not come to faith, to surrender to Christ as Savior and Lord. And I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would compel them this day to flee death and find life. And I pray, Lord God, for my brothers and sisters here, that these words would have an effect in this way, that, Lord, it would rebuke, these words would rebuke and they would confront and they would correct ungodly thinking and ungodly practice in our lives. And Father, they would train us to walk in the way that is pleasing in your sight. That Father, you would take these words and apply them to us in a way that reorients our thinking and our desires God, that inflames our hearts with a longing 
to love you supremely and live a life that is pleasing in your sight and that adorns the gospel. That is adorned with the gospel. So, Father, none of these things can happen apart from you, from your work, from your presence. We are ultimately dependent upon you this morning. But Lord, that's good news because we know that dependence upon you, sincere dependence upon you, is never dependence that is misplaced or that will not be fulfilled. So help us this day to hear and respond to your word in the way that we ought. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember, beloved, I told you last week that these two verses that we're looking at here in Romans chapter 12 are without apology two of the most important verses in this entire epistle. And again, that's not pastoral hyperbole. That's me not trying to, that's not me trying to hype something up or, or try to pump these, these verses up and make them mean more than they do. That's just fact. It is just fact. Because here's what's going on in these verses. What's going on in these verses is Paul is presenting to us what applied Christianity looks like. What it really looks like for someone to be truly saved by the grace of God. What the response of our hearts and our souls must ought to be. In other words, what, what he's doing here, unapologetically, he's taking a sword to the concept of easy believism. To the easy believism that corrupts and infects and infests our present day. This idea that I can take Christ as Savior and Lord, I can make a profession of faith, and has absolutely no impact or effect or transformation on my life whatsoever, but because at some point in my life I said the magic words or prayed the magic prayer or got dipped in the magic water, I'm a child of God and I'm going to heaven. That there doesn't need to be any accompanying fruit that gives validity to my profession of faith. Paul takes a sword to that idea in these first two verses. Because what he does is this. We're at a transition point. Here is the gospel that I've been preaching to you, Paul says. For 11 chapters, here is the glorious good news of how God saves sinners through the, the, the divine work of the Lord Jesus Christ to live a life on your behalf you could never live, to die the death that you deserved, and to pay the penalty of your sin that should have damned you to hell forever. And he offers you salvation through faith in his, in his righteous life, in his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead on the third day. A salvation that you receive by faith. A salvation that you have the faith to receive only because you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, by God's direction. And you've been given eternal life. Well, how do you live in light of that? What does that look like? How do you walk out your salvation in a way that is pleasing to God? And in Romans 12 through 16, we're going to see what that looks like. He's going to give us instructions and commands that, that, that we need to say yes and amen to, right? That we need to receive and say, yes, that's, 
I understand by the mercies of God, this is how I ought to live. And so by God's grace and by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, I will seek, for instance, to let my love be genuine. But how do you get there? And the way you get there is these first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Because Paul gives to us here the inescapable, absolutely necessary foundations of applied Christianity. Of the life that reflects the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the receipt of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, right? We need to be instructed. We need to learn, okay? And we're going to learn all these things. We need to learn because, you know, just because we're a new creation doesn't mean we automatically know how to live. We need to learn what that looks like. And we're going to learn that in, in again, Romans 12 through 16. But, but here's the pivot point right here. There's two significant things that have to be in place, Paul says, before the commands that we're going to read in the rest of this book are going to be helpful to our souls. First, he says, as we saw last week, he exhorts us that in light of the great mercies of God that have been lavished upon us because of God's great love, he says, present your bodies, present yourself, body and soul, to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, you do not own yourself anymore. When you receive the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you receive salvation by grace, through faith, you gave up any concept of being an autonomous human being. You belong to God. And so you must give yourself wholeheartedly and completely and without reservation to Him. You need to consecrate yourself to him. You need to set yourself apart to him as his own and glorify him in your body. And that includes everything with your mind, with your, with your ears and your eyes, with your mouths, with your hand and your feet, with your sexuality, right? With your desires and your energies and your physical gifts and skills, with your academic ability, your ambitions, your plans, your time, all of it belongs to, it's surrendered to the Lord. You keep nothing back. You live your entire life as a, as a, as a whole act of worship. Everything you do, that is what is well pleasing to God. That's the first foundational thing that we need to understand as His people. We belong to Him. We're not our own. He has ownership of everything about us and therefore everything about us, every faculty that we possess, every instrument of our bodies ought to be used, ought to be given over to God for righteousness. You remember what Paul said in earlier in Romans 6 when he says, starting in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We're to present ourselves to God, and the motivation to present ourselves to God should be great gratitude and love to God for all that He has done for us in Christ. Amen? 
The Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John said in his first epistle, he said these words, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, he said, For this is the love of God. This is how we love God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. This is how we show our grateful love to God. This is how we display our grateful love to God for His rescue and for His salvation. It is by obeying the commandments of God gladly. It's not by swelling words. It's not by great professions. It's not by singing until we almost faint because we're singing so hard. Songs on Sundays. It's not by posting verses on Instagram or links to sermons. That you didn't listen to. The way that we express our love to God is by keeping His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Now that should be the mindset of everyone that's born of God. That we love God and that we desire to keep His commandments and we don't find His commandments burdensome. What I'm going to say to you, beloved, is this, because this is important, I want you to hear me. If you find the commandments of God to be burdensome, if you find obedience to the Lord to be an imposition, like, ah, gee, I don't want to do this, but I will because God says. Or if you give no consideration to obedience to the Lord at all, then at best, I'm listening to me, at best, You are an immature and you are an ignorant Christian and you need to repent of your immaturity and you need to learn what it means to be a child of God. Brother, that is harsh. Nope, it's facts. No cap, as the guys would say. That's facts. And at worst, you are either falling away from Christ and you better arrest your slide or you're still in your sins and you're under divine condemnation. There's a decided transformation that takes place in somebody who's truly saved. Jesus was very clear about that. If you love me, you'll keep my word. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And again, this is a foundational principle. It's not just for super Christians or elite Christians or extreme Christians or a special class of Christians, whatever those might be. Paul directs all. These words to whom? To all his brothers and sisters. To all his brothers and sisters, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, is the idea here, who have been brought from spiritual death into life and who have been born of the Spirit because the true Christian makes it his aim to please the one who has saved him because he knows the mercies from God that he has personally received. And so the very first foundation for every single one of us, the very first point of examination for us as to whether or not we really have experienced these these mercies from God in the gospel is this. Have we presented ourselves to God with nothing held back? Nothing in reserve. Have we presented ourselves to the Lord? And now in this morning in verse 2, Paul is going to lay down the second foundational principle that must be in place in order that we might live a life that is pleasing to God. And it it begins with 
This command, look at it. First part of chapter 2. Paul begins by saying these words. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, beloved, I want you to see that this is a direct command from Paul. This is an imperative command. And the essence of it means this. Stop being conformed to the world. Stop acting like the world around you. Stop thinking like the world around you. Stop being pushed and shaped and molded by the world that is around you. Stop. Primarily, he is talking here about... What takes place in our minds? We'll talk about why that's important in a moment, but he's talking about that. And we know that's what's in view here because he sets being conformed to this world in opposition to the command, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? In other words, he's saying, look, there's a way of thinking. There's a way of perceiving. There is a a way of reasoning. There's a way of assigning value. There is a way of, you know... Of, of, of living your life according to human wisdom that the world is actively and energetically trying to produce in your mind. In fact, the word is translated here as conformed is a word that means to mold something or to shape it or to fashion it according to a pattern or a scheme. And the scheme is the principles of this world. Now, I want you to know that this word, the word that's being used here for world is not the one that we're most familiar with, the Greek word cosmos. That's not what this is. It is the word aeon. It means it is a word that speaks to a system and to the practices of a society that has no regard for God at all. That has no regard at all, no reference to his truth, no reference to his demands, no reference at all to the requirements of God. It's the world that is under the sway of Satan. It is the world that is influenced by the God of this world, that's been blinded and taken captive by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That world is continuously working to mold your mind into conformity with it. Now, here's the thing. I want you to see this. This is very important. The methods and the weapons that the world employs to conform you to its way of thinking are numerous and they are varied. In other words, listen, there are any number of methods and means that are used. Human philosophy and wisdom. Academia. Social movements. You know, the whole mob mentality thing. Music, entertainment, media, technology, government initiatives, conversations at work and with your neighbors and those kinds of things. There are all sorts of avenues that the world uses to bring you into conformity with it. Every avenue of human and societal interaction is laced with influences and, and inference, in, inferences, sometimes that are, that are bold and in your face, and other times that are subtle, and that are deceitful, and that are almost imperceptible, except you notice that they are absent real regard for God and His Holy Word. And this system of thinking, it comes at us from every angle. And the goal is, enslave your mind. The goal is, the goal is, 
influence, produce in your mind thoughts and ideas and concepts and reasoning and attitudes and social positions and all this other stuff that are minus God. That are minus godly thinking. That are minus godly principles. This is going to get a little technical, but I want you to stay with me because if you care about your mind, you need to hear what I have to say. Theologians have referred to this way of thinking as secularism. As secularism. What secularism is, it's just simply a way of thinking and speaking and explaining things that refuses to acknowledge the person of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this as a mindset that leads to a life, as it's thought of, an imaginary life. It's not a real life. It's not life as, as, as life really is, but a life, as it's thought of, that is organized and lived apart from God, without reckoning on God, and without being controlled by God. It's a life without God, and convinced that God doesn't exist, so for that reason, He doesn't matter. His warnings, His commands... His truth, they're not of consequence, don't you see? Because God is of no consequence. He's just a made-up thing. He's for weak people that need a crutch. You know, I mean, I don't need that because I'm so, you know, strong and all. But, but if you need it, well, okay. That's the mentality of secularism. Now, here's the deal. If that's the mindset of the present age, right, of the present evil age, that if God can just be disregarded, he can be discarded from the, from the equation, right? Then something's got to fill that vacuum, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Like people don't just not believe in anything. When you disregard God, really, you'll believe in everything. So if you discard God, you got to come up with something that fills up the vacuum, right? And that vacuum is filled predominantly in three ways. There's a multitude of ways, but predominantly in three ways. And everything else is kind of a, a, a derivative of this. But there's three ways in which we, 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 people remove God, fallen humanity removes God from the equation, and then we plug something else in. And those three ways are primarily this. Humanism, relativism, and materialism. Humanism, relativism, and materialism. And by materialism, I don't mean philosophical materialism where, you know, the cosmos is all there is and that's all. No, I'm talking about run-of-the-mill, you know, materialism. Living for this life. Those three things rush in. What's humanism? Humanism, you know what humanism is? It's, It's the view that mankind is the measure of all things, right? We're the measure of everything. It's an attempt to fill the void that's created when mankind disregards the holy and the true God. And so what we've got to do is elevate mankind to the level of godlike status. You with me? In other words, here's what we do. Here's what humanism does. Humanism takes the words of Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. Look at it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? Takes those words and then turns them in on man. All things are from man, all things are through man, and all things are to man. To man be the glory forever. It's nothing less than the deification of mankind, is it? Is it? I'm my own authority. I am the sum of all things. Everything exists for me. Everything and everyone exists for my pleasure. 
I define who I am. In fact, I am that I am. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Inevitably, humanism leads to relativism. Why? Well, because if you've got a bunch of little gods running around, there can't be any absolutes, right? There can be no truth at all apart from my saying that's true. So mankind becomes, the individual becomes the authority. After all, what's true for you may not be true for me. You have your truth and I have my truth. What happens if those two truths disagree, Bubba? Then what? Well, truth's fluid. Again, truth can be anything. I, you have your truth, I have my truth. He has his truth, she has her truth. They has their truth. And Z has their truth. And whatever multitude of stupid genders you want to put in there. My pronouns. You don't have a right to your own pronouns. Like really? What are you talking about? Do you have your right to your own adjectives too? No, really. Where does it end? From now on, whenever you refer to me, I want you to refer to me as excellently handsome and brilliant of mind. Because those are my words. And if you don't do that, you follow how stupid that is? But that's what happens. If you remove God, you've got to replace God with somebody else. That's us. And if it's us, then truth becomes relative. Everybody's got their own truth. And what you have then is a moral quagmire and a values vacuum. There can be no foundation upon which to establish universal and undeniable truth, right? No foundation to establish what's morally good or bad, what's righteous or unrighteous, what's right or what's wrong. In removing God and in removing truth must then needs lead to a truncated view of life. Materialism. Materialism is not just greed. It includes greed. But the heart of materialism is this. That there's only, you only get one shot at life and this is it. And when you die, you just cease to exist. So if there's any value to be found in life, it must be in the here and now, right now. And it's found in stuff and possessions and achievement and power. It's found in stuff like attention and human praise. It's found in pleasure and in wealth supremely. It's found in this life right here and right now. That's the mindset. That's the mold. That's the scheme of this world that is under the sway of Satan, that's futile in its thinking, that's darkened in its understanding, that is alienated from God and ignorant and hardened of heart. And the fruit of such thinking, beloved, is corrupt and it's rotten. And we are seeing it flaunted more and more in our age. Ours, beloved, is the age of the satanic sacrament of abortion on demand. Ours is the age of no-fault divorce and the dissolution of the nuclear family. It's the age of glorying 
in sexual immorality and deviancy and perversity, of transgenderism and doctor-assisted mutilation, of government-sanctioned euthanasia, of the predatory sexualization of children, of rampant human, human trafficking, of full-blown hedonism, of drug and alcohol abuse, of criminalism, of extensive political corruption, the obsession for false fame, the fixation with triviality and irrelevancy. It's the age of unthinking and undiscerning masses. We are dumber now as a society than we have ever been. We act like we're smarter than the generations that came before us. We are lying to ourselves. America has never been as dumb as it is right now. This is the age of valuing feelings and opinions over truth. Fools who claim to be wise, evolution and imaginary and pretend science, hollow self-serving morality and virtue signaling, mental illness, mass murder, increasing violence, greed and envy, growing incivility, self-worship, self-centeredness, self-pleasure, self-indulgence, idol worship, earth worship, societal collapse, economic collapse, strife, wokeism, cancel culture, gross pragmatism, where the most ridiculous means justify, or most, where the most ridiculous ends justify the most ridiculous means, widespread ignorance and delusion, the absolute inability to have a rational discussion with people anymore, it just it, it, it immediately breaks down to name calling, wars and rumors of wars, novel ways of committing evil. I could go on and on. That's the fruit of secularism and humanism and relativism and materialism. That's it. That's the fruit of our present evil age. That's the mindset mindset of the vast multitude. And Paul says, don't be conformed to it. They're trying to press you into that mold. Don't be conformed to it. And you know what? Apparently, this is a message that not only the Roman Christians needed to hear, we need to hear. How many more accommodations is the visible church going to give to the LGBTQIA++ crowd? The alphabet mafia. How much? How long are preachers who used to be worth their salt going to continue to treat Homosexuality in the press for the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism and everything else in the church. Treat those people as, you know, a certain privileged or special class of sinners. They're not. They're not. How long are we going to twist biblical justice into social justice? And everybody in the church go, I think that's a good idea. We need to wake up. We need to wake up. It's not just socially. It's personally. Think about the things that you believe. That drive your life. Are they biblically driven? Are they biblically informed? Or are they informed by the world? Informed by Twitter. I saw this week that, that Elon Musk removed all the blue check marks. I'm not really even sure what that is because I don't have Twitter. But removed all the black, blue, black check marks, blue check marks 
that supposedly identify, I guess, whether or not you're a real person or something. Is that what it is? You Twitterites? Is, don't act like nobody here uses Twitter. Is that what it means? It means you're famous? Okay, you've got some weight. I laughed. This week he removed it from a ton of, like, celebrities in Hollywood. And they all started whining about it. Oh, this is censorship. I don't want to pay my $8 to get my blue check mark back. You can't pay 8 bucks for your blue check mark. And you're a Hollywood celebrity. I forgot. Hollywood celebrities are a lot like our government officials. They don't have any money they can spend on themselves, but they sure can spend yours. So he started this campaign now. You can, you can give to get a celebrity's blue check mark back. You know, there are some idiots that are going to do that. Just shows you how stupid our society's become. Well, here's the deal. We can't escape the corruption that's in this world, right? Because of its evil desires. We can't escape that. The answer for us is not Christian monasticism. Okay? It's not just like, well, let's just withdraw from the world and let it go to hell in a handbasket. Let's just leave it alone. No, that's not it. The answer is not for us to just bury our heads in the sand and or, or do the monkey thing, you know, hands over your eyes, fingers in your ears, and hand over your mouth. That's not the answer. It's not to withdraw from the marketplace of ideas. Rather, it's to bring the mind of Christ. It's to bring the Christian mind into the fray. We've got to think about secular subjects, but we need to do it in a Christian way. Are you hearing me? We need to think in a Christian way about everything. It means we sift. We evaluate everything through the grid of the Word of God. And then we say, you know what? We are firm and we are unyielding and we're not going to compromise. This is what the Word of God clearly says. And we're going to follow where it leads. Because, beloved, the Word of God has the answers to every falsehood in the world. Look, the Bible answers secularism rather clearly with the doctrine of God, doesn't it? God's the creator and the sustainer of all things. The entire universe gives testimony to the evidence of the living God. And as sovereign creator, all of mankind will give an account of their lives to him, period. It has the answer to humanism, right? With the doctrine of man and the doctrine of Christ. Man was made in the image of God. And for a while, we retained that. But then we ruined and we wrecked ourselves through sin. And so man cannot be the nature of things because he's thoroughly corrupted and he's a depraved being. Just watch society play itself out. Are these the actions of God's? Not hardly. We can't be the measure of it all. Mankind that we see very clearly, it needs a redeemer. It needs a rescuer. It needs a deliverer. And there's only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture answers relativism with revelation. Look, there's, there's binding absolute truth that has been revealed from heaven in God's inspired and inerrant and infallible and all-sufficient word. Period. It answers materialism with the truth that there's only one thing worth living for. There's only one thing that's eternal. There's only one thing that is everlasting. And it's not any of the garbage that you can pursue in this earth. It is the glory of God, period. The prophet Jeremiah said it very clearly. Actually, the Lord said it through Jeremiah. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and he knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. All these braggarts in our 
society. They all brag on a bunch of different things except the one thing that's worthy of bragging. Again, here's the point. We need to be able to sift every influence of the world through the grid of God's revelation. We must seek a biblically informed mind so that we can resist and conquer the secularism of our age. A mind that informs us. A mind that grounds us. That establishes us. That strengthens us in the face of these influences. Again, because they're not going away. We've got to contend with them. We've got to contend against them. Beloved, that's essential to being salt and light. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If the salt of the earth becomes like the world, what good is it? It's no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For that to take place, you can't be conformed to the world. Now, here's the expectation for us. And what Paul says, the second half, or second part of this verse, second clause, Paul says, well, let's read just up until the end of it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, we're going to have to set up shop here for a second and dig, a little down, dig down a little bit into this, okay? Those words, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, okay? Those words, they are stated as a present passive imperative. Now, I'm not looking for you to have instant understanding of what that means, Okay? But you know, if you've been here, I don't normally, like, I don't just as a practice point out the tense and the voice and the mood of a Greek phrase unless it has significance, right? Well, it does here. The idea of the present tense is that this is a lifelong, a continuous, an ongoing, never complete, never finished transformation in this life. It's something that is always progressing. It's something that is always going on. You never get to a point where you are fully transformed. That's glorification. And that comes where? In heaven. It's ongoing. It's this, this ongoing transformation needs to be taking place in you. And then secondly, this transformation is a work of God, but for which you are also responsible. It's a work of God, but for which you are also responsible. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's not. Let me explain it. That this is in the passive voice means that this work of transformation is accomplished in us by the work of another. In this context, by God. God is the one who does the transforming, okay? But the imperative mood indicates... That we are not completely passive in this transformation. In other words, we've got to pursue this transformation. We need to pursue this transformation with diligence and with determination and with discipline, okay? It's not one of those, and you've heard me, you know, belittle this before. It's not just letting go and letting God. It's not it. You're involved. In fact, this concept really is well illustrated. In the words of Paul to the Philippians, when he writes to them in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in other words, it's this, it's this sort of teamwork idea that's going on where we must obey and we must put, we must work out. That is, we need to put into practice in our lives the implications of the gospel, right? The salvation that Christ has won for us. But even as we are doing that, God is willing and He's working in us by His Spirit to that very same end. So that as we make efforts to do this, God is amplifying our efforts by His own power, right? And it's by His strength that we actually make headway. You with me? We need to work it out. But God's willing and working in us at the, at the exact same time, okay? That's the first thing we need to see. But he says we've got to pursue transformation of our lives. Notice he says, by the renewal of our minds. By the renewal of our minds. That's the means by which we're going to be transformed. By the renewal of our minds. Now what that means is that we've got to then pursue the mind of Christ, right? We've got to pursue the mind of Christ. We've got to pursue a way of thinking, a a disposition, a manner of thought and attitude like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will empower us in that pursuit. We need to be pursuing the mind of Christ for ourselves. Now that's really vital. Here's why. Proverbs 4.23 tells us to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In the Old Testament, the heart is the seat of your mind and your emotions and your will. You better guard it. You better guard it, we read, because... From it flow the springs of life. Your life is determined by your heart. As a man thinks in his soul, so he is, right? That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said that the good person out of a good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. It's why, for instance, Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 to put off the old self, the, the former manner of life that was corrupt, you know, that was that was ungodly. Like, put that off, he says. Verses 23 and 24, chapter 4 of Ephesians. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, which is being renewed. I'm sorry. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let me say that again because I bollocked that all up. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He phrases it a little bit differently. In Colossians chapter one and, or chapter three and verse 10, he says, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What's the point? Here's what he's getting at. Here's the, the, the overarching thing. And this is why we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Here's what's the point. How you think. Listen to me now. You stay with me on this. How you think. What you believe, the ideas that you entertain, the concepts that rule your thinking, your reasoning and your attitude, listen to me, they will define who you are. They will define who you are. How you think and what you know determines what you believe, right? How you think and what you know determines what you believe. And what you believe determines how you live. Let me say that again. How you think and what you know determines what you believe. 
And what you believe determines how you live. You show me the way somebody lives, I'll tell you what they believe. You show me how they live. What are his values? What are the things that matter most to him? How does he live his life? I'll tell you what he believes. It's evident. People don't act in a manner except that which they believe. I'll use a silly illustration of what I mean by that. It's just, it's, this is silly, but I think you'll get the point across. When I was at the Naval Academy, we used to have these, you know, we would have fire drills all the time. And we would have them in, you know, Bancroft Hall, which is, you know, what the, this is where we lived. You know, and despite the walls were made of granite and concrete, which is really difficult to burn, right? And I can remember, you know, we would, they would have these, we would have these disaster things that would happen. You know, there's always somebody trying to be cute. It would be like 2.30 in the morning, right? And I remember it going off one time. I was a plebe, which is a first-year guy where you're not supposed to think for yourself. You just do what you're supposed to, you know, you don't just, don't think. Well, I kind of got a little antsy, so I decided I'd think. And I was laying in my bed, and the thing went off, and I'm like, I don't smell any smoke. This is not real at all. So I laid in my bed. My roommate got up. He's like, come on, man, we got to go. Grab your robe. Grab your flip. We got to go. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here, man. This is not a real fire. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sleep. I'm going back to sleep. I rolled over. I got fried. Not burnt physically. I got fried by the officer of the watch who gave me a conduct violation there. I, I could not leave the academy grounds for two months. Every weekend I had a march with a rifle. I acted out of my belief. It was wrong, but I acted out of my belief, right? You look at how somebody lives, you can tell what they believe. And it's not just other people, beloved, it's each one of us. What you think about and how you think informs what you believe. And that's why Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. But the battle, so much of the battle as a Christian is a battle for our minds. And so we've got to be transformed by the renewal of our Minds. Well, what does that mean? How, what does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? This is so cool. This is so cool. I want you to stay with me on this. The word transformed there is the word metamorphuste. Anybody want to take a guess with that word? What word we get from metamorphuste? Metamorphosis. It means to change. The essential nature or form of something. It means to become completely different from what has previously been. Okay, so how do we understand that? Here's how we understand it. It's the word, beloved, that is used of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that story? They go up on the mountain together and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up and then The Lord Jesus Christ is transfigured before them. And what happened? Well, what happened was, is that the glory that was intrinsic to the Lord Jesus Christ, His eternal, internal glory that was His, it broke through the veil of His flesh. His flesh couldn't contain it anymore, right? And what was true of Him on the inside became evident on the outside, right? 
And that's the exact same idea here. Only it's applied to us. Rather than us being molded by the world, our lives are to reflect the radical change that has taken place in us through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ. Why? Because we've been given a new nature on the inside and that new nature needs to be seen where? On the outside. On the outside. As God progressively delivers us as justified sinners from the pollution of sin and transforms our entire nature according to the moral image of God and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. The idea is we we are transformed in a like manner, not identically, in a like manner to the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's a, that's a pretty hearty promise, isn't it? We need to understand something, beloved. Look, the goal of the gospel is not merely to, to get you saved. Some people think, think that's it. Like, that's the end point, man. I got... Whew, they run the race. They think they ran a race to get saved. You didn't. God chased you down. You might have been running away from him, but that's the only race you were running. And you weren't really racing. God was winning. And you get saved. And then that's it. Like... There's no race to be run. No, 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 friend. When you get saved, when God saves you, when you are saved by the power of the living God, it's not like, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to run. No, actually, you're to run the race that is set before you, following after the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. That's when the race begins. That's when the race begins. God's goal is not merely to save you. He, God's desire is to create for himself a new humanity, a new people from the mass of sinful humanity to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. And that enjoyment begins right now. It's not like, man, when I die, I'm going to really start enjoying God. That's when it's going to be great. No. And you should be enjoying him now if you're saved. Because your old man is dead. And you're a new man in Christ. So you have to be enjoying them right now. That enjoyment begins now. And so we've got to be transformed. And we've got to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Here's why that is. Here's why our minds are important. Because before we were saved, listen, we thought and we reasoned like the rest of fallen mankind, didn't we? Didn't we? Of course we did. We had a mindset that was debased. We had a mindset that was thoroughly corrupted with sin, that was defective, that was devoid of a true understanding of God, that was alienated from Him. And even after we're saved, we carry with us the baggage of our former lives, don't we? you got to empty some of that baggage out. Our minds are not immediately and thoroughly cleansed of the sinful contamination of a world that hates and rejects God. There are years and years, sometimes decades and decades, of accumulated filth that needs to be progressively washed away and conquered and expelled if we're going to live and walk as Christ walked and live for the glory of God. If we're to have a transformed life, those old patterns of thought must be vanquished. This transformation, this process of sanctification, becoming like our Savior, growing in obedience and godliness, having a life that is pleasing to God, it can only be accomplished through the ongoing renewal of our minds. That word renewal means to cause something, in this case our minds, to become new and different 
Here's the key. With the implication of becoming superior to what it once was. Becoming superior to what it once was. Well, then how are our minds renewed? If we need to, if we need to have our minds renewed, and this command is a command that, that God works in us, but it's a command that we also have to obey, so we better figure out what it means, how we actually go about renewing our minds, then how are our minds renewed? Well, two ways chiefly, and the first one has nothing to do with you at all. The renewal of our minds has its inception, beloved, in the sovereign and the singular act of God by the Holy Spirit to regenerate your dead heart and to enlighten your deadened and darkened mind. And until then, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, you can't accept the things of God because you think they're foolishness. And we can't understand them in the truest sense, right? But being spiritually dead, here's what happens. God, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, makes us alive. He shines forth the light of Christ in the gospel upon our darkened minds. He gives us the faith to believe and we believe. He absolutely transforms what we are on the inside. He changes us. He takes from us this heart of stone and He gives to us a heart of flesh. He takes from us a darkened mind and He gives to us an enlightened mind so that we can now understand the truth of the living God. You had nothing to do with that. That was a monergistic work of God. That means he did it by himself. He gave you a new brain. Praise God. A new mind. Not a new brain physically. A new mind. Not like you did brain surgery on. You did mind surgery. Let's call it that. Our minds are made alive at regeneration. When we're born from above. We need that new heart, right? The seat of our mind and our emotions and our will. We need that new heart that God has promised to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36. You know these verses. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, who does all that? Not you, not me. That's where it all begins, but it doesn't end there. The renewal of our minds continues through our disciplined, diligent, Spirit-empowered and Spirit-illuminated hearing and reading and studying of the Word of God. The key to your mind being renewed is the Word of God. The Word of life. The pure spiritual milk. The truth of the living God. The testimonies of our Lord. It's the Word of God. Remember what Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17. He wasn't just wasting breath. He said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, right? Or David's testimony in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Amen. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Amen. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is produced by the word of the Lord, is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Beloved, the renewing of our minds takes place through the word of God applied to our minds and our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's how it takes place. We receive the word of God in various ways. How? Well, think about it. We receive the Word of God through hearing faithful, Spirit-instructed, and Spirit-inflamed exposition of the Word of God. True? 
True? We receive it through Bible studies and Sunday school. We receive the Word of God through singing doctrinally correct songs, through biblically accurate discussions and conversations, through books written by faithful, God-fearing theologians and pastors, right? But the idea is we've got to immerse ourselves in the truth of the Scriptures. Our minds need to take God's Word in and absorb it and meditate on it and feed on it and delight in it so that we come to treasure Him more and more. We saturate ourselves in the revelation of God and we find our minds renewed and changed and reshaped. We find our minds renewed, changed, and reshaped. By who? By God. By the Spirit of God who delights to use the word that he authored. And that renewed mind translates into our walk because it changes our perceptions and it informs our understanding and it affects our reason and our logic. It transforms our attitudes and our desires. It transforms what is in our minds, in our hearts, and then leads to being put into action in our lives. As we apply it, the word, diligently, led by the Holy Spirit, Again, how you think and what you know determines what you believe. And what you believe determines how you live. So I'm going to say a few things. And this might upset some of you. But if it does, I want you to ask, why is it upsetting you? Ask yourself that question before you get mad at the messenger. In light of what we're looking here, beloved, what we're looking at here, I'm just going to say... There is absolutely no reason to put any stock in a profession of faith in Christ that is absent a hunger for His Word. I'm going to say that again. There is absolutely no reason to put any stock in a profession of faith in Christ that is absent a hunger for His Word, that is absent a real desire to know Him, to know His truth, to be transformed by the power of His Word so that we live a life that is pleasing to Him. Listen to me when I say this. Absent the desire to read the Word of God and know God in His Word and have your thinking you know, informed and conformed to the Word of God so that your life is conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ so that you live a life that is pleasing to God. Apart from that, Apart from that desire and that longing and that direction, it's all just talk. And you might have fooled yourself, but you won't fool God. More than that, we shouldn't put any stock in the incessant search. You see people do this all the time. This incessant search that people go on outside the Scriptures for a word from God. I just need a word from God. I just need a feeling from God. God's going to give me the feels. If he hits me in the feels, I'll know it's from God. How do you know it's not indigestion? I mean that. This incessant thing of, you know, I'm looking for a nudge from God. I'm, I'm waiting for God to speak to me. Here you go. Here you go. Who do you think you are that God needs to speak to you specially? No, really. Like, you know, God just needs to show up while I'm shaving. Tell me what I need to know. There's actually a popular charismaniac preacher that was talking to John MacArthur. Yeah, John MacArthur about this. And he said, you know, John, quite often the Lord Jesus will show up in my bathroom while I'm shaving. And he'll talk to me. And John MacArthur looked at him and said, and you keep on shaving? 
You keep on shaving? We don't need an external word from God, an extra word. A new revelation. Listen, I'm just going to say this. Divination, which is what that is, doesn't require a renewed mind. It doesn't. The other thing, though, is this, is those people who deny the, the power of God's word to transform a person and renew their minds. You know, there are a lot of people that they will argue, they will argue vehemently for the inerrancy and for the infallibility of Scripture, but who will deny its sufficiency. Man, they will argue that, you know, oh, this is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's, it's infallible. It's perfect in everything that it says, and blah, blah, blah. But then they will deny the Scripture's sufficiency, believing that it must be augmented and assisted by this thing or that thing or the other thing in order for it to be effective. Scripture needs help. My goodness, what do the apostles do without the help that the Scripture needs? How did the gospel sweep the world? Without the help that it's so obviously sarcasm needs. Tell me, just point to one place in Scripture where the Word of God is insufficient. Where God sends out His Word and it does not accomplish its intended purpose. Give me one. There is no power in the universe that comes close to the power of God's Word. you know why? Because it's the Word of the Almighty, omniscient, omnipotent and omnicompetent God. That's why. God plainly said, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and so do not return there but water the earth, making it to bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, don't you think? Don't you? If that's not enough for you, the Lord Jesus Christ said this. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Beloved, the the heart of the redeemed soul is not indifferent to the Word of God. The heart of the redeemed soul is not looking for an additional word from God. The heart of a redeemed soul absolutely believes that the Word of God is sufficient for everything for which He sends it. Because the heart of the redeemed soul cries out words like this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep Your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of Your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. Be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds discipline yourself for the express purpose of pursuing knowing god in his word and being conformed to the image of christ by the power of the holy spirit so that you can demonstrate with your life that you're the child of the living god do it you're commanded to discipline yourself for that purpose and you know what here's what will happen the result will be that you will come to see the blessing of a life that is completely surrendered over to God 
and that is pursuing transformation through the renewal of your mind. You will come to see that the will of God is better than you could have ever asked for. Look at the result. Read the whole verse with me. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I want to make sure we understand what Paul's saying here, because it's going to be a little bit confusing. That phrase, that by testing you may discern, is really only three words in Greek. It's a pronoun, it's an article, and it's one verb. Okay? But what it means is this. It means to try and test something, to prove it, to, to come to know something by experience, to prove something experientially. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the transformation by the renewing of your mind by the word of God will lead you into a personal experience of the will of God for you. When the spirit and the word transforms you, You will see the commands of God as the delight and you will experience the blessing of walking according to the revealed will of God and you'll long for it. You will delight in it. You will treasure it. You will be well satisfied in it. You will come to realize that this is really life. And here's why. Because you'll see and you'll know and you'll prove by experience that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. What does that mean? Well, here's what that means. The word good means to be morally good. It means to be holy and righteous and good for us. The idea is, the implication is, it's the kind of good that brings life. Steve Lawson said it like this. He said, it's exactly what we would have chosen for ourselves if we were only as wise as God is. It's that kind of good. We'll find that it is acceptable. Again, it's the same word that's used in verse 1. It means well-pleasing. We'll find it to be well-pleasing to our souls. We'll delight in it because it'll satisfy us. Like, this is really good for us. We, we love this. This is what we want to do, right? And then last, we'll find that God's will is perfect. That is, it leads to its proper end. And that proper end is our transformation. That proper end is our maturity. It's our completeness in Christ. It's being made whole and lacking nothing. Robert S. Candlish. Scottish preacher in the middle 1800s wrote these words. He said, of the fashion of the world, of the fashion of the world, it may be truly said that the more you try it, the less you find it to be satisfying. It looks well. It looks fair at first. But who that has lived long has not found it to be vanity at last. It's altogether otherwise with the will of God. That often looks worse at the beginning. It seems hard and dark. But on, on with you. In the proving of it. Prove it patiently and perseveringly. Prove it with prayer and with pain. And you will get growing clarity and light. Enlargement of your soul and joy. You will more and more find that the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. For wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness and all our paths are peace. That the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned that in keeping of them there is great reward. Amen.
Beloved, in a nutshell, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 is this. It's Paul saying, live out the person that has now been redeemed by God and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and regenerated by the Holy Spirit that you really are. Live out who you are. And live out who you are, first of all, by presenting yourself to God, body and soul, the entirety of who you are, with nothing held back because there's nothing you can hold back because there's nothing you own. And then seek to be transformed as you walk according to what you know and believe. As you walk according to a mind that has been renewed by the Word of God. Sincerely receive His Word. And seek to be conformed to it. And as you do it, you will live a life that you will find is conformed to God's will. And you'll find that God's will is not just like a a road map that you're supposed to follow. Like an obedient little vehicle. You'll find that it's the outworking of a relationship to Him. As a great father with his son or daughter. And that His plans and His purposes are good for you. And it's for your spiritual growth. It's for your well-being. So that we may glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Here's the point, beloved. Soli Deo Gloria. It's over here, I guess. Yeah, there it is. Soli Deo Gloria. Right? That's not a catchphrase. You with me? This is not like, you know, blah, 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 a place to be. Right? That's not a catchphrase for us. It's what we who are blood-bought, spirit-indwelt, scripture-loving, all-of-life-worshipping people of God are to live to do. To give all glory to Him alone. To put the glory of God on display. To express the glorious worth of God and all that He is for us in Christ with our minds and our hearts and our bodies and our emotions and our wills. That's the purpose for which we have been made. That's the purpose for which this church exists. It's the purpose for which we've been regenerated and saved and for which we are being transformed evermore into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To God alone be the glory. And no glory to us at all. Not to us. Not to us, O Lord. But to your name be the glory. That was the heart of the psalmist. Beloved, that should be the heart of us. Be our heart. Jeff Thomas, I'm almost done, describes a prayer that his friend prayed that went like this. It's very convicting to him. See, his friend prayed this. He said, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. The rest of my life, whatever you want me to do, as your good and perfect will is made known to me, I will do it. The attitudes you want me to have, I'll make them my own. The truths you give to structure all my life and behavior, I'll take them as my beliefs. As I hear your word preached week by week, I'll do whatever you tell us to do. I will think as you tell me to think. I will value what you value. I will live for what you want me to live for. My purpose in life will be your purpose for me. Here I am, Lord. Help me to do with my life what you want. That prayer convicted Jeff Thomas. Convicts me. That's a prayer that understands the heart of Paul's words in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Can I pray that? That's what we need to be asking. Can I pray that? Can you pray that? Can, I, can you ask yourself, can I pray that? Honestly. 
in the light of the mercies of God, what will be your response? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Father, these words are primarily aimed at the heart of your people. These words are for professing Christians, for those that confess Christ is Lord. And they're given to us, Lord, to examine us and to prepare us and to prepare our hearts, Lord, for the instructions that are going to be following here. And I pray that you would take these words right now and you would drive them deeply into our hearts and our minds and you would make us to consider everything that we have heard, Lord God. That we'd not just file it away for a future date that we would deal with the truth right here and right now. And Father, I pray for those that are in this room right now that are not Christians, that have not come to a, 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 a place of, of really believing and surrendering themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, a conscious receiving of Christ as Savior and Lord and Master. And I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. I pray, Lord God, that you would convict them of the sin and of the corruption and of the depravity and of the false thinking and everything else, Lord, that yet ensnares their souls and for which they are guilty before your holy throne. God, that you would convict them deeply and they would see that they need a Savior. They need a Redeemer and they need a Rescuer. And that you have sent forth Jesus to be just that. You have sent forth your Son from the throne room of heaven to take upon himself human flesh and to live a life that none of us has ever lived. A life of absolute obedience and sinless perfection according to your law and to your will. And then at the time that was pleasing, he gave himself up to be crucified, to suffer a horrific physical death, yes, but to endure on the behalf of sinners and excruciating spiritual suffering like the second death of hell. The wrath of God poured out without any mitigation upon His pure and holy person so that bearing our sins on the cross, our sins might be paid for and we might be saved through faith in His death, His life, His death, and then His resurrection three days later. Lord, I pray that you would speak to the souls of those who are not yours here and convince them of their desperate need. To come and move in our midst as we consider all that we've heard, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.